The civil wars which pitted Parliament against the King touched every man, woman and child in Britain and Ireland, and the effects were felt for centuries after the wars ended in 1652. During the conflict, thousands of combatants were maimed, mothers were widowed, and children left orphaned. Afterwards, they were desperate for help from successive Republican regimes, the Protectorate which followed, and subsequently from the Crown after the restoration of the monarchy. For the first time in British history, successive governments accepted this responsibility by providing financial relief to wounded soldiers as well as war widows and bereaved family members. The resulting national programme was not repeated until the Boer War and its principles resonate with today's Armed Forces Covenant. Uniquely, the stories of these often desperate people are preserved in more than 4,000 petitions pleading for this relief. Here are the voices of ordinary men and women who survived the civil wars and would otherwise be lost to history. Now, after five years working in archives all over England and Wales, the historians of the Civil War Petitions Project which is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, are unlocking these forgotten voices for the first time in around 350 years. In this programme, the project's principal investigator, Andrew Hopper, professor in local and social history at the University of Oxford, introduces publisher Mike Gibbs to some of the people who have been rediscovered. Andrew, thanks for joining us. First of all, why did you decide to take on this massive project? Well, back in 2012 or so, I was supervising a master's dissertation student who was interested in uncovering the treatment of war widows during the English Civil Wars. And she had a personal reason for wishing to do so because her husband had been killed in Afghanistan. And so she was very personally invested in the topic. So the experience of supervising that project got me interested in the theme of military welfare in the civil wars. And I went down to the Devon Record Office to look through some petitions there. They have a very rich collection. And I had lunch with a fellow historian called Mark Stoyle from Southampton University. And as we were having our pie and our pint at lunchtime, uh, we cooked up a plan to apply to do a national project looking at the pension scheme, looking at the treatment of wounded soldiers, war widows and orphans across the whole of England and Wales during and after the civil wars. So it was a pub lunch, you could say, <laughs> that uh, was the genesis of the idea of taking on a national project of this scale. We're very lucky to be in receipt of a large standard grant from the Arts and Humanities Research Council. The project team worked closely on writing the application, which took us nearly a year, really, to draft fully. And then we waited a while to hear back, and we were absolutely delighted when we learned that the application had been successful. So we're very grateful to the Arts and Humanities Research Council for making this all possible. So at the end of the day, how many individual petitions are there? Well, we're still uploading them at the moment. We think there may be between three and 4,000 in total. 
That's if you include the certificates and memoranda and other loose stray kind of documents as well. And on top of that, there are tens of thousands of names and sums listed in the order books of the county court of sessions courts, where a lot of the pensions were awarded, which give us more insight. So in some ways, the petitions that survive are really just the tip of an iceberg. There would have been many more because there were so many names in those order books that we don't have petitions for. And just so I'm clear, these documents are not therefore just petitions. Can you tell us what were the different classes of documents that you were looking at? Well, the main one is the petition where the applicant requests financial relief of some kind, military welfare, because they're no longer able to work or support themselves or their family. That's the main block where we get all the interesting narratives about how they've remembered the civil wars, where they detail their experiences, suffering and loss. But there were also certificates too, because their cases had to be supported. It had to be proven that they weren't fraudulent and that they were genuine, deserving cases. So petitioners would need a certificate from their commanding officer to show that they were genuinely wounded in the course of their service. Or if they were a war widow, they would need a certificate perhaps also from a commanding officer confirming that their husband was in fact dead. And sometimes that was difficult. If the husband had been killed in Scotland or Ireland, there could be uncertainty about whether their husband was still alive or not. And then there are certificates from military medical practitioners too. So surgeons and medics, those who treated the wounded soldiers and dressed their wounds, could often provide a certificate saying, yes, this wound was genuine and this is what we tried to do to treat the wound. So those documents can be very interesting for medical historians too, because they can show something about how wounds were dressed and treated at the time. And what is quite remarkable, I suppose, is how many of these wounded soldiers survived the treatments and went on to live for years, sometimes decades afterwards. And were these petitioners always asking for money or what were they seeking in the way of relief? It was usually support of some kind um, and it was usually vaguely termed. So they never asked for a particular sum of money or even asking for money. They were usually merely asking the justices and the magistrates to think, you know, how best through their pious considerations, you know, how they could best support them. And so sometimes relief wasn't just financial. Sometimes they may be given a house or a horse or some other means of help and support rather than a regular pension. But usually it would be a pension that was awarded or a one-off gratuity, a lump sum payment to tide them over for a short period. And then they would be you know, invited to return perhaps to make another claim in the future. And the petitioners themselves were who? Well, the rank-and-file soldiers, um, sometimes non-commissioned officers, and sometimes even lower-ranking officers, lieutenants and captains, could apply for a county pension. The higher-status officers would really be looking more perhaps towards Westminster or towards a higher-status authority than a local quarter sessions court to seek their financial recompense. 
And of course, usually their arrears of pay would be worth far more than any pension. So it was worth far more worth their while to pursue that instead. But as well as the soldiers, we see war widows too petitioning and being awarded pensions. And this was really a moment of revolutionary difference because the pension scheme had been established by Elizabeth I in 1593, but that was only to cover wounded soldiers, not their families or their widows. But from 1642, the day after the Battle of Edge Hill, the Long Parliament, trying to win support, trying to convince people to volunteer for their armies, proclaimed that they would offer financial support, military welfare, not just to wounded soldiers, but to their families and dependents also, principally their war widows. So for the first time in English history, war widows are being acknowledged as having an entitlement to claim relief and therefore being part of the political nation. The idea that they had suffered too for the parliamentary cause was going to be recognised, at least in theory. Many war widows, though, would only receive pensions if there was money left over after the soldiers had been dealt with. And sometimes they would receive smaller pensions than the soldiers would. But Parliament had made a commitment there, and they did at least try to honour it in practice in the years that followed. And were the royalists then left out in the cold? They got nothing? Yes, indeed. The only people the parliamentarians were going to fund were the soldiers and their families that had fought for their cause. So royalists would be reliant upon the parish poor rate on charitable poor relief. They may also have been helped by the charity of their neighbours and possibly too by the paternalistic care of their officers, particularly if their officers were local gentlemen in their parish, they might go to their local gentleman's house or gates at Christmas and beg for arms. And there are examples of that, of cavalier officers in the Royalist Army giving charity to their soldiers at festive moments in the calendar. In particular, Christmas, of course, because it was a way of them snubbing parliamentarian ideas about not honouring Christmas as a festival. And so Cavalier officers handing out money at Christmas was a way of them showing their opposition to the parliamentarian regime. After the restoration of Charles II to the throne, did all of this change? Yes. So after 1660, parliamentarian pensioners lost their support in some counties quite quickly, in others over a matter of a year or two. And a new act was passed in 1662, which only enabled royalists to claim pensions. And the act stipulated that claimants had to demonstrate that they had always been loyal. So if they had changed sides at some point, as many thousands had, and this became known, then this would disqualify them from relief. And so you see in many royalist petitions that part of the text will say that they were always loyal to Charles I of blessed memory. 
and that they had always remained faithful to the king. And that disqualified large numbers of people, or claimants would try to airbrush that moment out of their past and refashion their history, refashion their activism in the civil wars and hope that maybe the magistrates and the people at the court of sessions would forget their parliamentarian allegiance. And I think it also became more difficult for the war widows of the rank and file royalist soldiers to claim pensions after 1662. And part of that was because there was such an enormous pent-up demand from the royalist soldiers. You know, they'd gone without pensions, they'd gone without state support, many of them for 15 years or more, and now there was a surge in demand now that they were suddenly able to petition for relief. And so there was a sense that it was more difficult for the war widows to compete against that. And also, I think, the restoration was about restoring the traditional political and social hierarchy. And many of the royalist justices may have been a little uncomfortable with the notion of women having an entitlement to claim a national pension. And we see in many counties, many of the royalist war widows, uh, certainly is the case in Yorkshire, those few widows that are able to secure pensions are officers' widows rather than widows of rank and file soldiers, widows of higher status, that the magistrates were concerned to you know, preserve their living standards, preserve their local reputations from falling into ruin. And is it possible to calculate the total cost of this programme? Many counties were spending several hundred pounds a year, particularly in times of peak demand. So if we multiply that across all of the counties of England and Wales and across the long period in which these pensions were claimed from the 1640s right through until the last one we found is 1718, so over a 70-year period, although, of course, that would have dropped off very dramatically in the later years as few of the pensioners would have still been alive. We're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of pounds were raised in this way across the parishes of England and Wales through a tax, through a levy on each parish to pay for this pension scheme. So the money was from a specific source. And very often there were problems collecting the required amount. Some parishes fell behind in their contributions and had to be leaned on and chased up by the treasurers and by the high constables of each hundred in gathering the money in. So it was a significant tax burden, particularly during and after the immediate war years, when the tax burden for all the other aspects of the civil war had rocketed perhaps almost tenfold. This burden came on top of that. The people of England were being taxed as never before in order to pay for the civil wars. And this was a significant thing over and above that. So if we could be transported back to one of those courtrooms, could you describe for us the scene and also what sort of people we would see petitioning? Well, I think it could be quite intimidating for a low-status wounded soldier or a poor 
war widow because they would be stood in front of the leading landowners of the county. And so they would have been very much overawed by the presence of all these richly dressed men deciding their case for them. They would be present as their petition was read out loud by a literate court official who would read out their petition. And then, of course, the main soldiers themselves may well have to submit to having their wounds inspected to make sure that their wounds had been genuinely inflicted in combat. And so that may have involved stripping, which may have been quite humiliating, quite shameful, quite difficult for some of them to show that they were a genuine case and that they weren't trying to defraud the magistrates. There was always that suspicion there that maybe some of the petitioners were fit to work and that they were shirking and that they were scrounging. They may well have been quite tense situations when these petitions were being read out. And were witnesses called? Ideally, a petition would have a supporting certificate from the surgeon who treated the soldier or from the commanding officer of the soldier authenticating their claim. And sometimes, too, the petitions themselves would have been endorsed and signed by members of the parish elite, the leading landowners in their home parish, people like the church wardens, the constables, the overseers of the poor, the office holders of the parish. And quite often they had a vested interest in the petitioner being successful because if they were, that would shift the burden of paying for that person away from the parish and onto the county. And so it would you know, lighten their local taxes somewhat if they could get some of their parishioners onto a county pension. Before we move on and talk about the actual project itself... Can you summarise for us, please, what do we know about the English Civil War from the project that we didn't know when you started? I think that's best summarised into three themes, conflict, welfare and memory. If we take the first one, conflict, I think the petitions really show how the war was ingrained into every county where there was military action. It wasn't just the two big field armies of the king and parliament marching across the country and clashing in big battles. The war was really deeply interwoven into local life and into local society. And many of the casualties was a result of that local, small-scale, endemic nature of the conflict, rather than the big battles that everyone knows about. Secondly, with welfare... I think the projects help show how many claimants of welfare survived pretty horrific wounds and lived for years and even decades afterwards carrying pretty horrendous injuries. So maybe that should lead us to reassess the nature of medical care during the conflict There's an assumption, I think, in the popular imagination that in the days before science and antiseptics and anaesthetics, that military medicine and surgery was very brutal, that it was led by charlatans and very poor practitioners. When this project's shown, well, how many of those that survived? Some of them survived wounds that we would scarcely think possible for them to have survived. So do we need to reassess 
the quality of medical care during the civil wars as a result. And then the third theme is memory. We've long known how the king and the nobles and the uh, social elite look back on the civil wars through things like proclamations, through diaries, through memoirs in particular, through printed pamphlets and polemic. We've known a lot less about how the ordinary soldiers and their wives look back on the civil wars, on what the experiences of the poor were during the civil wars. And not so long ago, historians said that this couldn't be done, that there weren't the sources for a history of this nature. And we've been able to show that that is in fact possible and that we can uncover these testimonies from the poor and middling sorts of people across England and Wales. And that those memories went on for decades and decades after the wars. 70 years later, there were still pensioners claiming relief because of their losses and sufferings during the civil wars. So I think the project helps show that, that the wars aren't ended when the treaties come along and sign off or start a new political settlement. Wars aren't ended when the last of the battles finish. Those wars then have a legacy for the participants that lasts for the rest of their lives and echoes down the generations. How has the project brought to life some of the forgotten people of the English Civil War? I think what the project shows very well is that the Civil Wars were fought not just by the knights and esquires and the landowners and the social elite, but the armies, the soldiery of the armies, were made up of the middling and poorer sorts of people across England and Wales. And this project really uncovers their memories and remembrances, their experience of the conflicts for the first time. Andy, thanks very much indeed. That's fascinating. And I'm looking forward to talking to you more about some of the specific people and places that are included in the project. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for your interest in the project. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We hope you enjoyed this programme. You can explore the lives of more than 4,000 men and women who lived in 17th century England and Wales and who survived the Civil Wars by visiting the Civil War Petitions website, civilwarpetitions.ac.uk. Take a few minutes and see if you can discover one of your ancestors and find out how communities in your area were affected by the conflict. To listen to a second programme unlocking more of these forgotten voices and to register for our monthly newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down, visit our website at worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk. This will give you access to many more podcasts by leading historians discussing the causes, conflicts and consequences of the wars fought across the three kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland. You can also listen to our programmes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about this critically important time in British history and how these events helped to shape Britain today, do visit the National Civil War Centre in Newark, Nottinghamshire and check out their website, nationalcivilwarcentre.com 
for details of great educational programmes and super school visits. <laughs>